0: Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is the author of ten novels, including Platform 7, recently filmed for ITV, Blackwater, a New York Times notable book of the year, the bestseller Apple Tree Yard, adapted for BBC One, and Whatever You Love, nominated for the Costa Novel Award and the Women's Prize for Fiction. She wrote and created the hit BBC drama Crossfire and her work has been translated into 30 languages. Her latest novel, A Bird in Winter, has just come out. Louise Doughty, welcome to Meet the Writers.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here.
0: Or at least welcome back, because actually we talked about Platform 7, what, about four years ago?
1: It was four years ago that Platform 7 came out in pre-pandemic, of course, which feels like another world now.
0: It absolutely does. But since then, of course, you've not rested on your laurels. You've done a huge amount. Tell us what you did after Platform 7. Well, I had had the idea for
1: A Bird in Winter in my head for a long time. I had wanted to write a novel about a woman who goes on the run. And before the pandemic, I took myself off to Norway and to Iceland. I knew that she was going to flee to the Nordic countries. I didn't quite know how or why. And I was going great guns. I'd written about twenty or 30,000 words. And then the pandemic hit. And the irony of writing a novel about a woman on the run at the point in human history when we were all trapped in our houses did not escape me. Mm. And I am not one of these writers who just loved it because they could just sit at home and write. It was the total opposite for me. A, I was trapped indoors with my entire family, which (laughs) was not conducive to producing a novel. It has to be said when I normally have the house to myself. But B, I realised how much my imagination is fed by concrete reality and how much I needed to get out there. And I was thinking about Platform 7 you may remember most of it is set on Peterborough railway station and I was sitting at home trapped inside thinking I can't believe that a visit to Peterborough railway station now seems exotic <laughs> and fascinating <laughs> and desirable at the same time I got the commission from the BBC for Crossfire which was my first ever television commission it was a three-part action series we filmed it later starring Keely Hawes it was a huge deal and so suddenly I was stuck at her and trying conditions and I had a three-part television series to write and a novel to
0: write and I'm not going to lie it it was a tough couple of years (laughs) it really was Well Crossfire just gets more and more dramatic in terms of how you actually made it
1: That was very challenging I mean Covid restrictions were still in place and one stage we tried to fly 38 cast and crew out to Tenerife where we were shooting it at the height of Covid we had special permission from the president of the Canary Isles. We'd all been COVID tested within an inch of our life. We had private jets, we had the whole works, and we were refused permission to fly, literally, just as we were about to take off. It was very dramatic. We were all sent home again. And, of course, it was catastrophic for the actors and the crew because there was no other work going at the time. Luckily, we managed to hang on to Keely, our big star, and we did successfully film it nine months later, But it had to be a closed set, which meant we were all staying in the hotel we were shooting in. And for those of you who haven't seen the series, it's about a gun attack on a hotel. So one day we were filming these awful events in the hotel restaurant where we were shooting people dead. The next thing, we were having our breakfast buffet there with our baked (laughs) beans and our hash hash browns. And Keely was actually staying in one of the rooms that we were shooting in. So she was not only living her character, she was actually sleeping in the same bed that her character slept in. And it really was one of the most bizarre experiences of my life. It's not something I'd repeat in a hurry,
0: I don't know. (laughs) Just looking back over your career, there was a kind of a switch, really, with your fourth novel. That was Fires in the Dark. Tell us about pre and post that.
1: Yes. Well, I suppose you could say that my career so far has come in three phases over the ten novels. The first three novels, I tend to refer to slightly dismissively as early work. I once made the mistake of doing that on Twitter, forgetting that the editor that commissioned them followed me on Twitter. (laughs) And she replied somewhat acerbically, I won't hear a word (laughs) said again. But you know, they were books about young women, roughly the same age as myself, living lives that were, I mean, they weren't autobiographical, but they were within the remit of my own experience, if you like. And then with the fourth novel, I took a big departure and I wrote a long historical book, which was essentially a Holocaust novel. It was set in the Czech Republic, in or Czechoslovakia as it was then, in 1927, and then it covered the rise of Nazism, um, the Second World War, and it ended with the Prague uprising of May 1945, and it was about a group of nomadic Kalderash Roma living through that time. And then the follow-up to that was about my own ethnic ancestry, which is English Romana Child, and it was set in the late 19th and early 20th century. I was saying to somebody only the other day, I think writers always get stereotyped by their successes. And if either of those books had taken off, if they'd done a kind of Schindler's List or a Brick Lane or a big historical success, then... I probably would have carried on writing more of those books. But as And you'd it was, be known as
0: the Roma writer. I would, yeah. yes,
1: I would. But critically, both of those books were very successful. I had the best reviews I'd had so far, but commercially they, they weren't at all. They were flops, to be honest. Let's not beat about the bush commercially. <laughs> so when it came to novel number six, I sort of felt at a bit of a crossroads. There is a kind of a mid-career thing that happens to a lot of novelists where they are supported by their publishers through three, four, five books and then eventually when you're not making the publishers any money you can get dropped like a stone and it's happened to several writers I know and if you're lucky it's a mid-career dip and if you're unlucky it's the end of your career so I didn't want that to happen to me And a bit like Madonna. Am I claiming to be a literary version of Madonna? (laughs) Yes, I think I am. I decided I had to... I knew I had to reinvent myself in some respects. So I went off and I did what I always do, which is I write a novel which is largely from a female point of view, first person. But this one was, if you like, a more plot-driven book. It was Whatever You Love, which is about a woman whose child has been killed in a hit-and-run accident and her revenge against the driver... And it had many of my familiar preoccupations. It had a group who were economic migrants living in a small town on the English south coast. But there was no doubt that it was a more self-consciously plot-driven book than my first five. And at that point, I also moved publisher. I went to Faber and Faber, who have published me ever since. Mm. And I think it's fair to say that the last five books have all been in that category of plot-driven, largely first-person female Narratives, although Black Water is set in Indonesia, is from a male point of view, but that had a kind of spy element, so it was plot driven. And I suppose you could say that that was the point at which I hit my stride. That was certainly the point at which I became more commercially successful. But, you know, if those two historical books, had been commercially successful, we would be sitting here talking about my 10th novel set in, I don't know, 17th century Amsterdam (laughs) or whatever. The flow of a writer's career is always unpredictable and it's always conditioned by
0: the book that happens to be successful. Mm. I'm really interested just to pick up a little bit on your Roma background. Tell us more about that heritage.
1: Well, that's on my father's side. He's no longer with us, sadly, but we grew up with, I think the best way to think about it is if you think about Jewish families who emigrated to the UK at the turn of the 19th century and anglicised their names and became assimilated. On a smaller scale, my father was a, a similar sort of man. His mother's family had been English Romanese in the 19th century. They had travelled from harvest to harvest. They'd lived in vardos or wagons. He grew up Rockering, as it's called. Rockering Ruminous. He could speak. He would occasionally chat to aunties and uncles in a language I didn't understand. But if I challenged him, he would say, oh, that's just the cant I speak with your Auntie Betty. Take no notice. But we grew up in a very clean, modern bungalow in a small town in the East Midlands. We would go and visit the aunties and uncles in Peterborough. And it would be very different. There would be these big family gatherings with loads of food on the table, lots of shrieking. And I grew up with the understanding that there was a side of our family that my father had left and that he didn't really talk about much. And then eventually it sort of came out bit by bit that he had this Romani ancestry and also that it was something He was somewhat ashamed of. He told me not to tell my school friends. Of course, I went straight to school and told everybody the next day. Um, When I started talking about it publicly, when I wrote Fires in the Dark and Stone Cradle, he said, you want to be more careful. You know, you'll get a brick through your window. You've got two children to think of, you know. And his attitude was very much, if you kept quiet, you could pass. Mm. Why are you even talking about this? And I think to his dying day... He never really understood why I was fascinated by his ethnic ancestry and he never thought of himself in any way... As mixed race or anything. You know, I remember telling him the Nazis successfully invaded Britain in the Second World War, he and his family would have been shipped to the gas chambers alongside British Jews. And he could not accept it for the same racial reasons. He could not accept that at all. He thought of himself as wholly assimilated and never
0: really understood my fascination with it. Quite extraordinary how that discrimination and hatred and those crimes have fingers right up to the present day. So you're not known as the Roman writer, but you might be known as Louise Doughty, the knee trembler.
1: <laughs> oh, gosh, talking of how we get stereotyped. Yeah, let's tackle that one. Um, this is Apple Tree Yard. Apple Tree Yard, my seventh novel. I mean, talk about being stereotyped by your successes. I mean, that was what is known in publishing as my breakout book. It's a term that publishers use to mean you've finally started earning us some money, girl. That's what they mean by a breakout book. And that was extraordinary to me. I had no idea. But that's a novel about a middle-aged woman, much like myself. And uh, I always like to make my female characters different from myself. So I made her a top geneticist. I mean, you are talking to a woman who got an E and O level chemistry. (laughs) I think they were being generous when they gave me that. She's a very rational, suburban, ordinary woman, husband, nice home, two grown-up kids. And then one day she meets a man when she's giving evidence to a House of Commons select committee. And immediately has sex with him in the Houses of Parliament, the knee trembler, as as you call it. And it's a completely, what I wanted to do was to create a woman who all her life has done the right thing and been rational. And then one day she commits this one utterly irrational, inexplicable, out of character act. And then, of course, the whole of her life spins out of control as a result. Mm. And I I had no idea what a nerve it was going to hit,
0: but it certainly did. And do you think that is because readers are generally frustrated middle-aged women who would love to do the same thing? Well, what was
1: fascinating about the success of Apple Tree Yard is it spawned this rash of newspaper articles, you know, this sort of shock horror, middle-aged woman has sex. And I just—I was reading them. I was thinking, is this really all that revolutionary? Because I'm a middle-aged woman and it's not unusual. (laughs) I have middle-aged women friends. It's not unusual. But of course, what was unusual was middle-aged women talking about it. Mm. I mean, it was only 10 years ago that that book was published. But at the time, it was considered revolutionary. I was constantly being told that I had broken new ground. And I was floored by that. I have to say, it did also spawn a rash of novels and T V series in which middle aged women are having frantic knee tremblers down eyes <laughs> and I do occasionally think, okay, rein it in a bit now. We're not getting that much, <laughs> really, are we? You know
0: um, speak for yourself. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> It was a huge, huge success and of course it was a television series and it it just it did amazing things for you. I just before we talk about A Bird in Winter, which I just loved, I wanted to talk a little bit about the business of selling. Selling yourself really is what you have to do as a writer because people think, I think, that you write the book, it goes out, it sells or doesn't. Sometimes it gets reviewed, you do a couple of interviews like this, but actually it's really hard slog.
1: It is hard slog. I'm not going to lie. And I I hesitate to complain about it because, of course, if there's one thing that's harder than the slog of book tour and giving interviews, it's not being booked for any events and not being asked to do any interviews. And, you know, I have a lot of writer friends who don't get the sort of coverage I do, who would be very happy to have my problems. I think the problem is, is that there's only one of you and the book is the same book. So you do end up answering the same questions again and again. And there's something about that. It's it's not the fault of the outlet or the interviewer. But there's something about that that as an author you you end up feeling somehow a little cheap that you're just going out and you're you're doing your shtick. But I think at the end of the day, I suppose what you have to say to yourself is that every different radio station has a different listenership, every different newspaper has a different readership. There are so many books published. I mean, walk into any bookshop and you, you feel a little nauseated as a, as a novelist because you realise how much competition there is out there. And really, you know, the novel is out in hardback now. I don't know how much it dollars full price. I'm asking a total stranger who doesn't know me, who's maybe never read me before, to go in and... And to part with that kind of money to read a story I've written, so really it's only right that I get out there and do a bit of explaining what that story is about. Because you you don't want to ask people to waste their money. the The world is full of wonderful books. They may or may not like mine, and mm. I think getting out there and, and talking about the book it is a very important
0: part of the process. Well, I would absolutely recommend people pay whatever the asking price is because it's a fantastic book. It's got such a sense of kind of menace g- going throughout it. We get such a sense of the landscape. It's it's extraordinary, as you say, it 's about a woman on the run and something you 'd wanted to do for ages, and you did all these wonderful research trips and really got under the under the skin of the places you wrote about too. I did uh, once restrictions lifted
1: in the pandemic, I realized there was a bit of a hole which was the middle of my book. I had the opening scene which i 'd written very early, and that had come to me very strongly as a woman in a meeting in an office block in Birmingham with, you know, glass top table, coffee and croissant, a group of other people in business suits. And she gets up and turns to go. And as she does, she's thinking it's no more than 30 paces to the lift. And at the time I wrote that scene, I didn't know who she was or what she was doing. All I knew was she had to get out of that building and get out fast and go on the run. And indeed she does. We follow her up to New Street Station. She disguises herself en route. She gets on one train. She gets off just before it leaves and then gets off another. She hides her phones on the train she isn't on. And I was writing these scenes and I already knew that I wanted it to end up in the Nordic countries. But to really interrogate who she was and what she was running from, I had to go on the run myself. So once restrictions lifted, I went to Birmingham. I had a rucksack on my back and a beanie hat and I went on the run. I followed Heather's route. The first thing I knew is that if you're going on the run in this country, you really can't use a car because of automatic number plate recognition. You won't get five miles down the road. So it was trains, buses, ferries on foot. I went up to Glasgow and the Western Isles to a lovely village called Plockton, where a crucial scene from the novel is set. Then over to Inverness and then a very long bus ride up to Thurso and the ferry up to Orkney. And I went hiking in remote areas and I followed Heather's route as she tries to disappear.
0: And I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I don't want to give any more detail away because the plot comes together in lots of unexpected ways. And at one point, she's sleeping under a bridge, for instance. Did you do that? I didn't do that. I didn't sleep rough, <laughs> I have to be honest. And
1: also, the other thing I didn't do is I didn't cross the North Sea illegally on a yacht and enter Norway illegally because <laughs> I have the weakest stomach in the, on the planet. Um, I did do some of the walks where Heather's on her own in areas with no phone signal and there's a crucial scene in Thurso which is a small town it's the very very top of the British mainland and it's where you stay if you're going to get a ferry up to Walkney and I arrived there on a bus it was something like a four or five hour journey from Inverness I was one of the last people on the bus my other passengers got off melted into the night the bus pulled away and I was standing on my own in the pitch dark in this freezing cold town with a fierce wind blowing, and I had to find my guest house. And there's something about those small towns after dark, you know, nobody is on foot, nobody was around. And the darkest thing in the novel happens in Thurso. And that came very much from my own experience of finding myself there after dark on Mm. my own, not knowing where I was. It wasn't hard to imagine fear. As it turns out, I mean, it's not too much of a spoiler to say because you find out very quickly that it turns out that Heather works for the British Intelligence Services. And the idea of going on a flight when an unknown number of people are pursuing you and some of them mean you harm... That bit was not difficult to imagine because I think as women we are used to the idea that there are certain situations in which we are prey and so I really just let the imagination run with that. And I
0: mean all sorts of things, not just cars, but you can't use credit cards. And... You can't,
1: no. I did set the book ten years ago specifically because nowadays, of course, there are huge amounts of places where you can't use cash at all mm. and I needed her to be able to use cash. So she has got a certain amount of cash with her, but she has to be careful with it. You certainly can't rent things. There's a lot of stuff you can't do once you fall out of normal society. Mm. And she does create a false identity for herself eventually, but she can't use it until she's successfully escaped the country because she can't risk that being picked up. And she does go on the run with a burner phone, but then she has to get rid of even that. Mm. Even that is a risk. When I researched it, one of the things that came up again and again is the way that people get caught when they go on the run is always communication devices or when they try and make contact with somebody from their old life. Mm. That's how you get traced. So no phones, no watch, no, <laughs> no tracker devices. She really is on her
0: own. A lot of the book is also about friendship, female friendship. And I love that part of it, although it's a, a friendship that that is shattered. But I found the way you describe the relationship, the closeness, and it was just very, very beautiful. Tell us more about that relationship.
1: Well, that came in directly from the idea that although Heather works for the intelligence services, she is a bureaucrat. She's not an active agent. And she hasn't been one for decades by the time she goes on the run. And I wanted to make it plausible that she was resourceful enough and well-trained enough. So... I gave her a background in the British Army. She joins the army after university in the 1970s when what women joined was something called the Women's Royal Army Corps. I mean, women were not allowed to go to Sandhurst at that time. And in the army, she meets another young officer called Flavia. They both end up leaving after a few years under a certain cloud, but a very intense friendship is formed. And I was really interested in writing about those friendships where it is romantic. It's not necessarily sexual, but you do love your friend. You want to protect your friend. You feel hurt if they're out of touch for a while. And crucially, when you have a row with them, it has all the edge and passion in the same way that it does if you have a row with a lover. And as you say, the friendship does fall apart and fall apart catastrophically. And yet it echoes Throughout Heather's life, mm-hmm. long after she has ceased to see Flavia on a regular basis, and Flavia's fate comes into the present day story of the book. My standing joke, which I've said probably far too many times about (laughs) this book, is that I do think of it as if John le Carré and Elena Ferrante had a secret affair, what would their love child look like? (laughs) It's a rather grandiose claim for my own book. But that's really where the Elena Ferrante aspect comes in. I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan of both Le Carré and Ferrante. And I really did want to marry those aspects. The idea that at its a heart or in its in its plot structure, it's a spy novel, it's about somebody on the run. But I think in its emotional heart, it is about a female friendship and the way that it stretches across the decades.
0: Mm-hmm. Just to pick up on relationships there, you were talking about moving publishers and you're now with Faber. Your launch was, in fact, in their beautiful new building. And I just wondered about that author-publisher relationship, because it does become very, very intense. And in a certain way, you're kind of their cash cow. I mean, you have to produce.
1: Well, I'm very flattered to be called a cash cow. (laughs) (laughs) It remains to be seen its early days with this book. Will it bring in the cash? Who knows? It is a different relationship when you are actually earning the money. You're quite right about that. And certainly my early books, I think there was a slight sense that I was being kept on in the hope that one day I would come good. And that is what publishers do. They publish authors as lost leaders or they publish authors in the hope that they will write, you know, the big book, the breakout book. That relationship does change when you have a bestseller, as I did with Apple Tree Yard. And you certainly, as a writer, feel a strong sense of obligation. I think particularly with a publisher like Faber, which is a publisher I admired from afar long before they published me. They do a lot of poetry. They publish a lot of music. They have some fantastic new writers. If you're with one of the big conglomerates, they're earning their money from gardening books and cookery books. So I think you you don't have to worry <laughs> that whether or not you're making them money. I think with a smaller literary house like Faber, then there is more of a sense that, yes, I, I want to support this endeavour. You know, They also have the Faber Academy. They have the Faber members. They, they bring members of public into the building. They are an important part of our literary culture. And that's something that I'm very proud to support mm-hmm. as much as I can. And, you know, here's hoping I'm able to continue to do it with A Bird in Winter. I, I should say books take a long time to earn out as it's called hardback sales are always going to be minimal you hope for a big promotion with a paperback book club or richard and judy and of course in in my case you hope for television adaptation and a bird in winter is in development so
0: fingers crossed fantastic i mean i just don't see why anybody wouldn't buy it frankly (laughs) Thank you. It's a, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really wonderful book and it's absolutely deserving of success. Louise, thank you so much. Thank you. A Bird in Winter is by Louise Doughty. It's published by Faber and & Faber and it's out now and you ought to read it. You've been listening to Meet the Writers thanks to producer Tamsin Howard and to our studio manager, Steph Chungu. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.